Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you again to our Good Friday evening service. My name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor of West Cohasset Chapel. If you're new, you're very welcome. If you've been here a while, you're welcome. We're going to read from the Bible. And if you have your Bible, Galatians chapter 3 is where I'd ask you to turn. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible or didn't bring your Bible, page 824 in the seat Bibles, if that helps you. We're going to read about 14 verses, even though we're going to spend the vast majority of our time or most of our time on just one verse. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord this evening. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. And here's our verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ so that by faith we may receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word tonight. Will you just stand with me briefly as we go to God in prayer and seek the help that we need this evening? Just a a brief moment of silence and then we'll set ourselves on our way. Our gracious God and Father, blessed be Your name. You are the author of our salvation. You are the God of grace. You are our soon coming king. You are the one, the only one who judges the living and the dead. And you are holy. What we ask that you will do for us this Good Friday evening is what we cannot do for ourselves. That is to speak and to listen, to understand and to believe and obey so that we might all be transformed by your mighty power. God, this is our true longing. We pray that you would surprise us with an unusual sense of your power. May the humble be helped. May 
the prideful be brought low. May your son be exalted. And by your mighty power, will you save the lost this evening? And God, please speak to my weakness, mighty as you are. For I am nothing and I can do nothing apart from your help. And so I ask for that help now for Jesus' sake. Amen. You can be seated. Blood. Blood spilled in a fallen world like ours is a sad fact. In the arena of normal living, blood spilled is horrible. In the arena of media, be it movies, gaming, or dramas, blood spilled is acceptable. For some, it's almost thrilling. But in religious circles, speaking of the blood of Christ shed as the only means for the forgiveness of sin seems increasingly in our day tacky. It's for another time. It's kind of small townish, small minded. Something like that is not big enough to address the world's real problems. For people say that the world has grown up and passed all this superstitious bloodshed on a crosstalk, and the world is in great need of something more. Maybe, maybe more love, some say, but only love as they define it, not as God presents it. But thank God that God doesn't pander to human weakness or sentimental trends that so many would attempt to lay down. For the pride of humanity's sin left unchecked would dilute the clear and shocking and necessary teaching of the Bible. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have believed and they have sung and they have preached that without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the New Testament makes it very clear, sometimes painfully clear, that God planned through the wickedness of men for His perfect only Son to save hate-filled rebels from the wrath they deserve by His suffering and death on the cross. And there is no hope without it. So if you think about these things and understand them correctly, the Bible is a book and the gospel is in part a message that drips with blood. It drips with Christ's blood and nothing we can do can change that fact. But what about this idea of cursing? We read it five times as in many verses. What about verse 13? Christ became a curse for us in order to redeem us from the curse of our disobedience to God's holy law. If you're thinking, that would seem almost equally archaic, outdated, passe, as useless as bloodshed. I mean, our society is very sterile, it's very hygienic, and it has trouble with these things. John Stott in his book, John Stott, who is 80 plus years old in his book, The Cross of Christ, said, The kind of God who appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be accommodating. He would have no violent reactions. Unhappily, even in the church, there is much shallowness and humor among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit seems to be slouching or squatting. We do not kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. Now, the word cursed is hardly used today this way. But it's used by Paul and it's used by God to explain the achievement of Christ's death. So we have to understand it. And with God's help, we're going to this evening. And to do this right, we have to remind ourselves first of who is speaking and why they're saying anything at all. Well, the person who is speaking is none other than the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. 
He was sent, chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians, by Christ and sent by God who raised Christ from the dead. He was a middle-aged convert to Christianity. And who is he speaking to? Well, he's writing to the churches, more than one church in, in the providence of Galatia. Okay, so then why is he speaking to them? Well, he's writing to them because there was this massive problem in the churches in Galatia. A problem that is not much different in our day and dare I say in our region. And Christ's honor and people's eternal destiny was at stake because of this problem. And the problem was this. The Galatian church was turning to another gospel other than the one gospel Paul had plainly preached to them. And they were deserting it for another one, which was really no gospel at all. And so confusion about the gospel and a perversion of the gospel was everywhere. So the churches, the people, because of that, were in grave danger. And we should appreciate this because Paul was a man under commission. The apostle was given a trust by God. He was like we are told to do, or he was doing what we were told to do, to contend for the faith. To say something when it's needed, when the gospel is being defiled. And he was told that he would suffer for this message. And since Christ's glory, and since human destiny was at stake, he confronts the era. He does not dodge the era. And it's important that we know this. Paul comes to them not looking for their approval. Paul did not come to Galatia candidating. He was not pandering to them. He was not indulging in their weakness, their wishes, their wrongness, and their taste. He didn't care if people said or didn't say, Oh, I like him. He's very nice. That was not Paul's concern. The fact of the matter is, who cares if he was a nice guy? The fact of the matter is that I would rather have a grumpy pilot flying a 747 that could actually land the thing safely than a very nice pilot, a very friendly pilot who doesn't know what in the world he's doing and could care less what he's doing as long as he gets his wage. The churches in Galatia tremble at the brink of capitulation to another gospel. We tremble the same way to pluralism, meism, and all kinds of things. Courage and duty is needed here. For the Galatians were not the test of what was right and wrong in the gospel, and either are we. In fact, Paul lays down this principle plainly. Galatians 1.10 If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now this kind of thing, if it's not understood, is frowned on this day. But this thing is crucial for the sake of life-giving truth. Ignorance is bliss is Shakespeare. It is not the Bible. And dear ones, the Bible, when understood correctly as a polemic book, running from this is cowardly, but enjoying this is pride. And the apostle will not run from this. And he tells them, as we read in those first five verses, by use of an argument, that these Galatians are foolish. And he says it like this, You heard one gospel, you believe the one gospel, you receive the one Holy Spirit given to you at this acceptance of this one gospel. You lived out all the implications and obedience to this one gospel. You dared much, you risked much, you suffered much for the sake of the gospel. And this powerful and real change, 
a change that redirected the fundamental direction of your life and your thinking, you are now wavering from. And now you are trying to accomplish your salvation by mere human effort. You're trying to become right with God, accepted by God, by your fleshly attempts at obedience. And Paul says it plainly, how foolish. And later on, in Galatians 6.12, he'll say how sinister. Because this whole line of thinking is simply to avoid persecution for the sake of the cross of Jesus Christ. And just listen carefully. Not only this is foolish, but it's also very, very vain. To think that a mere man or a mere woman could have and maintain universal, perpetual, genuine, which means every time we obey God, it is for His glory only, that that could happen over and over again perpetually. That is the height of arrogance. And it's rooted in ignorance. That's why He calls them fools. Because this is intellectual dishonesty. And it makes one all amped up on themselves and not Jesus Christ. And we probably need to think that out. No, that's the context. These fools think that they can make a go at righteousness. And Paul says the antidote for such foolishness is one thing and one thing only. It is the gospel. The gospel that says Christ became a curse for us. So in the time that we have left, what we're going to do is say this. What does that mean that Christ became a curse for us? And then why does it matter at all? So the first thing is, what does that mean? Well, Paul begins in verse 10 all the way to verse 12 by establishing the standard that God has established, established in order to be right with Him. And the standard is plain. Only an absolute, continual, genuine obedience can a man or woman be right with God. And no one but Jesus has ever filled that written, fulfilled that written moral law perfectly. And because of this Because of this, the whole world is condemned to death. You see, the law reveals sin. It cannot save us from sin. And the law condemns sinners. So the principle that Paul lays down is very plain. No man or no woman can depend on their righteousness. For since the first book of the Old Testament, God has made it plain that the righteous will live by faith. Which speaks about how long the Bible was ignored. And how long the Bible is ignored. And so the person who lives by relying on themselves to be right with God, the Bible says plainly is under a curse. And the curse means this, that you are separated from God. This is Old Testament language Paul is using. And again, the curse is you're cut off, you're separated, you're without hope, and you're without God in this world. And that's what the Bible means by curse. And don't be alarmed. Christ Himself became this curse for a time in order that we could be released, ransomed, repurchased. Chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So again, what does it mean that Christ became a curse for us? Well, this is Old Testament in imagery. God is choosing this to communicate to us our redemption. The opposite of cursing is, of course, blessing. Blessing to the people of God was always understood, as the Bible said, the highest point of blessing is when a person would come into and remain in the very presence of God. 
It was to have God's gaze fixed on them at all times. Hence number six, Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. This was the ultimate blessing. And this blessing meant that God's gaze and God's face was fixed on his children. And when that happened, all kinds of benefits would trickle down. And this blessing, God said, was received only by obedience. Deuteronomy 11.26 See, I set before you a blessing and a curse. If you keep my covenant, keep my commands, God says blessing. If you do not, curses. Curses, then, is the complete opposite of blessing. In a curse, a man or a woman disobeys God's will. God turns his face away from them. He removes his power, his presence, and his promise from that person. For they lied to God. They said they would obey and they did not. The 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. God describes his determined curse. And it's horrible. And it goes like this. Crops, land, curse. The womb, cursed. Wasting disease, fever, inflammation in the body, heat, drought on land. God Himself will afflict the person with madness, blindness, confusion, boils, prolonged disease, an anxious mind, despair, a life of constant suspense. Things will get so bad under this curse that when the enemies come, the enemies of God come and trounce on you, even the most sensitive and gentle person will turn to cannibalism. They will be removed from the very land they were given by God by promise. And all this was an indication of the ultimate curse, which was this. God's face was turned away from His people. God's face was turned away from the wicked. This is cursing. The light of His glory is no longer shining on them. God's back is to them and darkness, utter darkness surrounds them. For the benefits of God and his presence were completely cut off. Now that's not very pretty. It's not very nice. It is very biblical and it is God's determined judgment. So blessing is God's presence. Cursing is the removal of God's presence. And both have massive implications. Now, if you're still with me, Paul is saying by Christ becoming a curse for us, is using the Old Testament Day of Atonement as imagery. The Day of Atonement worked like this. It was an extension of God's grace. And yes, there was grace in the Old Testament. The grace of God in the Old Testament is clear. There's not two kinds of gods. One God in the Old and another who changed His mind in the New. The God of the Old and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. And it went like this. If the people in the Old Testament would come and confess their sins and believe that what was taking place in this day of atonement was taking care of their sins, then God would forgive them. And this ceremony would take place and the curse would be removed from them. Now in this ceremony, a lamb without blemish and a goat were selected by Lot by the high priest. One was slaughtered. It was the lamb. When it was slaughtered, blood was everywhere. The blood of this unblemished land would be taken by the high priest and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the most holy place. 
at that point, God's justice was satisfied. The penalty paid, satisfaction between man and God for that year. Now, this part of the ceremony was marked by tension. Would God accept the offering? And it was marked by drama. Would the high priest even come out of the most holy place alive? But I said there were two animals. The second was a goat. And the goat had a different fate. And to the Jewish mind, this fate was far worse than the fate of the lamb. Because the goat would be cursed. And here's how it went. The second goat, called the scapegoat, would be taken by the high priest. The the high priest would take both his bloody hands and hold the face of the goat. And he would look at the goat. And he, by right of ceremony, would begin to confess every sin of all the people to and upon the goat, eye to eye with the goat. And he would name each sin plainly. And the fate of that goat was to be driven outside the camp, symbolically outside of God's presence, banished, never to return. In other words, the scapegoat was cursed. Sin was cast on it, and God would not see it. Now in this rite, the people saw God as He is. God is holy, God is just, and God is judgmental. And God punishes sin severely. For to think that people would ever breach their covenant what they had made with God. The promises that they had made, they would infringe on. So that God wasn't even able to know their sin, or see their sin, or do Something about their sin is foolishness and it is sacrilege. And so that sinful behavior, God said, necessitated death. The death of a ritually clean animal to take God's people's place in order for God's people to be made right with God. Enter Jesus Christ. He is our scapegoat here. This is what Paul is trying to conjure up in the reader's mind. Christ redeemed His beloved from the curse of the law by becoming this goat, by becoming this curse. Now think of it. The sins of the whole world for all time were named plainly on the scapegoat Jesus Christ. Now think of it. We've all heard many sermons about the physical sufferings of Christ, but many died on a cross this way at this time. But what about the curse that was laid on Jesus? He lived out and He endured the whole weight of the whole curse of God on sin that He never knew Himself. And we have to understand this. One so holy, so pure, so pristine as Jesus Christ had His face held, if you would, and He was touched by sin and He became sin and every sin named to His face just like the scapegoat, our frauds, our disgraces, our blasphemy, our neglect, our lies, our hate-filled words, deeds, our thoughts, every verbal and mental injury towards another, our lusts, whether they be real or whether they be imagined, our, our just stupid, ignorant fits of rage, our slyness, our coyness, polished words that are meant to sting other people, Selfish preoccupations are sins committed that we are unaware of because our sinful nature would hide everything. Our deeds, 
or vomit-filled deeds spoken to and then placed upon Jesus Christ. And they kept coming on our precious Savior. His face was held, words pushed out, just like the scapegoat, until the full just wrath of God was exhausted. Now this is a metaphysical and this is a physical reality. Until, until the cup of God's wrath for all sin, for all time, by every one was emptied on Christ. Until that happened, Christ was our curse. So if you're new to Christianity and you're thinking, you'd ask the question, what kind of God would do such a thing? And someone thinking would answer it like this, a moral, upright, holy God who is disgusted with sin, who does punish sin, who inflicts retribution on sin. But a holy God who offers himself in in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become our curse for our sin. To that end, what kind of son would volunteer himself to this kind of condition? Well, it's clear, right? A loving son. A son who loves his father's standard. A son who knows his father right and just and knows that his father is too kind to do anything cruel and he's too wise to do something foolish. And so this good son pays for the sins of those his father loves. You see, God can't let sin slide. His judgment on sin is real. And it's necessary because God is real. His nature, his nature is moral. He cares about right and wrong. And the final judgment will bring all that to light. And loved ones know this because sometimes I'm afraid for all of us. The gospel was never meant to dumb down the horror of sin so as to understand that all Christ's death means to us is that we get one more mulligan for one more sin, one more time until we die. Jesus takes on this curse. He lives it out completely. A Jew, a cursed Jew, would be thrown into the hands of the Gentile nations. Jesus was shuffled to Pilate. Jesus then went to Herod. And then Jesus goes to Gentile Pilate. And the decision comes of crucifixion. Crucifixion was not a Jewish means of death. It was Gentile. Jesus dies outside the camp. Another sign of cursing to the Jew. Darkness covers the earth in the middle of the day. The light of God's countenance was removed from Jesus. Cursed. Then the cry from Jesus, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, this this wasn't just a feeling. This was fact. He became the curse for a moment as death comes on him until he dies because of our sin. So there was no more God for Jesus for a time. No more God's presence. No more this eternal bond between the Father and the Son that had no right to be broken, was broken. It ceased. God separated Himself from His Son. The Son became a curse because the Father designed it. He became stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded for sin. And then death comes. The ultimate conclusion, the ultimate curse. And this is what the curse means. Now quickly and finally, 
before we take communion this evening, why does this matter? Well, it matters because that when on the cross where Jesus died and the wrath of God was satisfied and every curse because of every sin was laid on him, and at the point when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, spirit, atonement is done. Redemption between man and God now becomes possible. The impossible now becomes possible because the price has been paid. Satisfaction given. Death doesn't hold Christ anymore and death will hold no one no more if you believe on Him. And it matters because this is the only means that God has provided for sin and for sinners who deserve this curse. Because if Christ did not become the curse, we would be forever excluded from Christ's presence, from God's presence, and we would be eternally condemned. You see, our salvation is all outside of us. But the scapegoat, our Lord Jesus Christ, found his way back to God because God raised him from the dead. This is why it matters. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. You stood in sinner's stead and did bear all ill for me. A victim led, your blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart, with tears two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my own worthlessness. Loved ones, God have pity on us if we are not satisfied at any point in our life with a Savior like this. God have pity on us if we ever complain again. And if you've long withstood God's grace and you've long provoked God to His face, the word from God this evening is this. Just stop it. Stop it right now and yield to your Savior. He's the only one. Run to Him. Fall on your knees and say something like this. Lord Jesus Christ, You took on what was Mine. And you set on me what was yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what I am not. And you are my Savior this Good Friday night, 2011. And I know now that the only reason why I am going to heaven and the only reason that I am redeemed from this horrible curse that I deserved is this. It is because Jesus Christ became a curse for me by his suffering and death on a cross. Now let us pray this evening before we take from the table. Our God and Father, it becomes plain to me over time that you who love us even though, Father, we have despised and rebelled against You. You who have loved us in our sin and has loved us 
and our wickedness and folly and has given us what we do not deserve that this God, you God, are a God of grace. Father, this story has to be told this way because it is true. And we pray now, Father, for the grace that we need as we prepare our minds and our hearts to receive of the table, the table that proclaims the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.